Thanks so much for listening to No Lions Here with me, Big Panda. Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome back to No Lions Here. My name is Big Panda, and I'm a recovering sex addict. Um, Today, I have the privilege of hosting an esteemed guest, Sako Barbarian, a licensed mental health professional with an impressive array of qualifications. Sako holds a master's degree in social work, um, is a licensed social worker, a licensed associate counselor, and a certified sex addiction therapist, currently serving as the program coordinator for BAI, where he is also a primary therapist. Sako specializes in the nuanced field of sex addiction therapy, where he assesses and guides clients grappling with compulsive sexual behaviors. What sets him apart is his unique approach, grounded in somatically focused and trauma-integrated perspective. This means he is not only addresses the surface level issues, but also recognizes and works with the profound impact of trauma on individuals. His toolkit includes uh, dialectical behavior therapy, DBT, trauma therapy, and motivational interviewing, showcasing a holistic and versatile approach to the mental health counseling. Sako is passionate about providing comp- comprehensive assessments and tailored treatments to support individuals on their journey towards healing. Join us as we dive into the world of sex addiction therapy and mental health with Sako, gaining insights into his wealth of experience and transformative power of his therapeutic methods. Welcome, Sako. I'm so thrilled to have you on the show, man. Welcome to No Lions Here. Thanks, brother. Good to be here. Um, yes. Yeah. So Sako and I met, we met at Beginning and Institute where I went to treatment. Um, and so, you know, I got to spend time with you both times that we were out there. And man, I, I really enjoyed the work that we got to do with you. So, um, so jumping into it, man, you know, what, my first question, you know, what got you into this kind of work? You know, what led you to, you know, wanting to become a therapist for sex addicts? Yeah, uh, good question. Um, one of the things I'm going to do real quick is let this dog in or else you're going to scratch at the door <laughs> over and over again. Oh, look yeah. at that little pup. I know. I know all 10, 10, 11 pounds of viciousness <laughs> barking at the door. So, um, yeah. So what got me into it was, a uh, a whole mix of things. Um, uh, personal experiences were, uh, definitely a factor in this, but so we're, uh, family experiences uh, within part of my history i um the dynamic and enmeshment with my mom that was there um, that occurred really unintentionally as a result of my mom and dad splitting put me in that uh kind of role of you know becoming uh you know like a surrogate spouse as they call it right mm-hmm. and so yep. i was per- i was providing and being praised for that kind of role and uh, uh, skill set from a young age, connecting and attuning with people. Of course, it was not my job at the time, and I didn't know to attune and be, you know, helping to uh, support. Just as my mom was supporting me, I was supporting her. Like I, I was not aware of that and, and grew up with a lot of uh, my, my aunts were close to us. And so I grew up with a lot of women. And I think uh, had the advantage there of having um, training and emotional awareness and connection from early on in that way. And similar to you, I've always seen that as something that you you came into BAI with a fair amount of uh, emotional intelligence, I would say. And so um, so that was a part of it. And uh, uh, over time, some of those family experiences, 
translated to in um, my college years, I was trying to decide uh, what I was going to do, like many people. And I, w- I was a pre-med student and I was thinking about going to medical school uh, or maybe becoming a physician assistant. Um, I was... I was not totally sure, and so I did most of the coursework for going to medical school, uh, short of a couple of di- a couple of classes, uh, like organic chemistry. They didn't take organic chemistry. I was like going to avoid that if I could. And uh, but ultimately, even in the idea of maybe going and becoming a physician, I was like, you know, what what changes people? Like what um, whether you're a cardiologist or you know like a physical therapist. Imagine you can put together a plan for someone or a personal trainer. You can put this plan together that's based in um, science that is customized, tailored to this person. But whether they follow through with that plan or not is based on what's going on between the ears Mm. and what's going on in here. Mm -hmm. And I said, I want to be able to do that work. I want to be able to go to the root of where change occurs for people. Right. And so that paired with a bunch of different experiences I was having at the time started nudging me towards the world of what we call behavioral health, right? Behavioral health is the combination of mental health and addiction. That umbrella is called behavioral health. So that's what uh, nudged me into that. And I I actually didn't start in the world of uh, sex addiction, you know, sexual compulsivity, porn addiction. I worked uh, on a psychiatric unit, a locked psychiatric unit for two years. So individuals struggling with, um, who were in a full manic episode or, or um, had, had recently um, had an incomplete suicide attempt or were actively suicidal or were uh, in a psychotic break or were uh, experiencing a number of different symptoms and, and, and schizophrenia. And so I got to, I, I value that work because I got to see a whole lot of things, um, how much some people struggle and suffer and also saw a lot of resilience in people and learned a lot about um the mental health piece and how to navigate the system to find support for people. So that's why that component is so important uh, because then I went and got some specialized training and worked in the substance abuse field. So I worked in an inpatient program, similar program, a a two week program uh, that had more of a variable length. People could stay a third week, stuff like that. But uh, so got a pretty robust education and all that. And so that's why I'm a licensed addictions counselor as well. So uh, that piece allows me to bring that in. So in the team, I I probably touch on that piece the most is like the co-occurring substance piece. I bring some of that experience to the team, which I'm uh, grateful to be able to do. Yeah. So uh, that and, of course, work in this field and and being interested in delving deeper into process addictions um, led me to... uh, working in BAI and getting my CSAT. And so uh, here I am, you know, uh, let's see, 2014 is where I started in this field, late 2014. So almost 10 years now. Wow. Crazy. Yeah. Wow. That's awesome, man. That's really cool. Um, Do you, because I I know that, you know, I have those kind of those co-occurring addictions, like Mm -hmm. cocaine addict and also a sex addict. Mm-hmm. Is it is it fairly common for you know sex addicts to also have an underlying or another co occurring addiction or can it be just yeah that? yeah yeah uh, co- 
addictions co-occurring are pretty common, right? Um, so we have to be aware that we have like a certain level of bi a bias because it's like, oh, who are we exposed to? And let's say we go to a 12-step meeting, like an SAA meeting or an SA meeting or an SLAA. You know, I'm going to see other folks who kind of, there's some similarities between us. But uh, yes, absolutely. I would say that um, most most people with addictions have a secondary and tertiary uh, addiction or at least compulsivity, right? Mm. So that does co-occur a lot. And, um, and this is where we find a lot of guys who come into the program. They say things like, you know, I was active in AA for 10 years and 15 years or NA or CA. Um, and I address that piece but I had this thing going on the whole time underneath, right? So we hear that a lot. So this is pretty common. And so there's the substance piece, but there's other stuff, right? Like workaholism, um, uh, eating disorders or disordered eating, right? Uh, it could be like screen addictions, video games. Mm. There's a whole exercise for some, but if you look at it, I mean, most people, if they're, taking a look at their stuff as they focus in on one addiction, you see the secondary one start to like kind of creep up a little bit, which is a common experience where people either stop using substances and then suddenly their uh, sexual compulsivity spikes, or it may be that they're early in recovery from this stuff and they find themselves drinking more. They're like, uh, I'm starting to, you know, it's a difficult time. I'm, I've, 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 I've drank kind of quote unquote recreationally normally, but then that starts escalating up as they, as they get sober from, um, sex addiction. Yeah. Yeah, I can. And I can definitely relate to that. Um, and we need to add like <laughs> distractaholic to that list of things. Distractaholic. Uh, sure. Yeah. Yeah. That is, that is me. I don't like the work, like work. I've never found myself throwing myself into any kind of work that I've done, but mm -hmm. I am so good at distracting myself from real from what's really like going on sure. inside of me with whatever it is. Um, yeah. I haven't heard that term before. It's really kind of, it's cool. Yeah. Which may fit I, with I, some I, part of what we're going to talk about today. Yeah, absolutely. I, it actually it yeah. came up in a meeting recently and people were talking about workaholic and I was like, ah, no, nah, I'm a distractaholic. Like, and, yeah. uh, and a lot of people said that they could relate to that. And I was like, yeah, I, I believe it. Yeah. Um, so yeah, kind of like, so when we were emailing, you know, you, you brought up that you wanted to kind of talk about like ADHD mm -hmm. with addiction and how that kind of mm -hmm. plays into it. And I, and I think that that's a really unique and interesting topic that I definitely want to dive into more because I've been kind of having my own thoughts around, I think that I may have some form of that going on with me. Um, so I definitely wanted to dive into that and, and hear kind of like, what your experiences with that and kind of, you know, what you see in people as far as that goes. Yeah. 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 Well, one of the things that's worth, I think maybe touching on is um, what ADHD is and isn't uh, because, you know, some people have some of the folks who are listening may have some familiarity with it, may have it themselves, may suspect that they have it. And, and, and there's a lot of misunderstanding over like what it is. Um, because what it is to uh, clinicians is sometimes different than what, you know, kind of lay folks um, see it as. One of the things we're throwing out there is that uh, there. It, so ADD is often like what 
one hears culturally, and it's more common to, to say that. Yet in the diagnostic Bible that clinicians have, which is currently the DSM-5, which is the, the current edition, there'll be another one that comes out sometime, I don't know, in the next five to 10 years called the DSM-6, which is like the updated iterations of diagnoses. Um, and, and in that diagnostic manual, um, kind of the clinical Bible, there is no such thing as ADD anymore. There's only ADHD. Hmm. But that's the, if someone has ADD, diagnostically, it would be ADHD. Okay. And that hyperactivity part of the, of the diagnosis really throws people off because people say, I'm not hyperactive. You know, some people may say like, I don't have that piece. And ultimately, ADHD, a lot of the experts, uh, a lot of the modern experts believe it's like poorly named. That's not named right. That it's, it's, its name misleads people. Um, and so, so what, does, what does ADHD look like, right? Uh, ADHD can, can have a couple of different types or presentations. There's what we call uh, the hyperactive presentation which is someone who is kind of more of what people think of when they think of ADHD, someone who talks a lot, moves a lot, is like impulsive and jittery. Like, you know, when I say ADHD, Big Panda, like what, what image comes to mind? Like, as I just say that, what image comes to your mind? Yeah, somebody fidgety, kind of all over the place, bouncing around, doing this, starting this, but not finishing it, and then moving on basically with a yeah. bunch of things that aren't unfinished. Totally. How, how old are they in your mind in the image that you saw? I would say probably like teenage to early 20s. Yep. And uh, what gender? A man. Yes. So, so there you go. Right. That, and that's often what people associate. They like think of like a little boy or an adolescent or like a young adult. Because that's where you see that presentation most uh, often. Interestingly, it's the rarest type of ADHD is that hyperactive really? presentation. Yeah, the, the, the most common one is what's called the mixed, the mixed one. Before we talk about the mix, there is the inattentive type. Inattentive is more like the spacey. Um, I'm in my head a lot. I'm off in la la land or I get distracted or I space out and kind of look like I'm checking out or dissociating. That presentation is most common in women. Um, And the the mixed type is the most common type that people have, where they have some of the hyperactivity and some of the um, inattentiveness. And it can change based on uh, phase and stage of life and a bunch of other factors. So uh, what we understand uh, ADHD to be is that it's... um, it's, it's, it's a, it's a neuro difference, you know, similar to when people talk about autism, you know, people who are on the autism spectrum, they have a different brain. There's, there's, there isn't uh it's, it's not fair to look at it as pathology. Like this person's brain is sick or broken. It's not, it's their brain is wired differently. And what, and there are challenges in operating with that brain in the world because the world is set up for what we call neurotypicals people who have more, a more traditional type of brain. Right. And uh, so, so it's a ADHD similar to um, autism in that way is a type of neuro difference. And often individuals who have it need to understand how their brain works, how to allow themselves to operate in the world more effectively, 
and how to make it so that they don't suffer from this stuff um, and can uh, uh, find a lifestyle that has like balance and uh, effectiveness in it, right? So that's a lot of um, what we view it as. It's also a, it's ultimately an executive functioning issue. That's the best way to view ADHD. People struggle with executive functioning. What is executive functioning? Those are really a lot of the things that the frontal lobe manages. It's things like um, assessing risk, controlling impulses, um, being able to read people or put yourself in other people's shoes, the ability to zoom out and look at something big picture and to zoom in. Uh, executive functioning manages our sense of time, like our, our awareness of time, as well as kind of that time pressure or urgency that we feel. Um, it allows us to initiate tasks and to disconnect from tasks. And uh, it also allows us to regulate our emotions. So it's kind of a governor system that's a part of executive functioning. And then other things like prioritization, goal setting, and working memory, basically kind of like your RAM in, in your head. So it's the ability to hold things in your memory, even when you're doing complex tasks. Like if I said, you know, Big Panda, I'm going to give you like five words, you know, I'm like, you know, polar bear, napkin, bagel, you know, milk, and giraffe. And I'm like, remember those words, and now do this task. What you would need in order to hold that information in your head is working memory to pull that up. It's like your short term, like fast memory. It hasn't been transferred to any kind of long term memory yet. So people with executive functioning difficulties have difficulties with all of those things I just named, which is why people with ADHD tend to be forgetful. Mm. They tend to have trouble juggling things, you know, um, hey, do this thing. Hey, wait, wait, hang on. I'm doing something. Write this down. Remember this. And they're like, ah, like, hang on. No, 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 no. <laughs> like if you don't, write it down. If I don't put it in my phone, I'm not going to remember this, you know? Um, so we can talk more about some of these things and how it ties into addiction in a little bit, but I'll just kind of stop and, and, and allow you to kind of reflect on that, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. That's uh man, that was a really, a lot of really good information there. And definitely you, you brought up perspectives that, you know, I, I don't know much about ADHD again, I told you what the picture of it in my head was mm -hmm. um, and just kind of like thinking about it in terms of like my life and kind of the way that I do things. I know that task wise, like I like to start on a task and I can't start or do anything else. I don't even like stopping that task until it's done. Yeah. Cause then I'm like, I don't, yeah. I don't. So as far as like, the spectrum of it goes obviously mm -hmm. is it one of those things where it can be really extreme and then also mild is that yes is that it can is is that a part of it yeah totally a lot of the a lot of the um you know disorders and, and calling it a disorder is also like a bit of a controversial thing because people argue like there's nothing disordered about this person's brain this is how their brain is just wired differently the problem is occurring when that brain is trying to act in an environment that it was not built for, mm. right? Because um, there's, there's, there are um, interesting uh, arguments, evolutionary arguments that ADHD ultimately is a, is a type of neurodifference that allow, has allowed us to be successful, you know, as a species, 
uh, someone who is like prone to being um, hyper-focused on the shiny thing or looking at like on the horizon and getting like hyper-focused on certain things and being impulsive in the way they jump into it can result in, you know, them going and discovering something and bringing that information, that, um, that asset back to their group, their village, you know? So there's, it's, it's, um, there's uh, basically it speaks to the advantages of having uh, AD, an ADHD brain as well. So, yeah. So what you're talking about, absolutely. There can be a spectrum and, um, and the things that I, I, I think most people don't know about of what I just spoke about that, um, can maybe help some listeners figure out, Hey, does this maybe apply to me? So, uh, ADHD is not just about distractibility. It's not just like a, a distractaholic piece. People with ADHD also, um, have, they have trouble focusing on things that are not interesting, engaging or stimulating to them. Basically, if it doesn't produce dopamine, I have a hard time engaging with it. That's how it works. I have ADHD, so I'm pretty familiar mm. with how, how it feels and what it looks like. So um, just as it's hard to like get started and stay focused on tasks that are unengaging, you just described that a little bit ago. They're also really prone to getting hyper-focused on stuff that is interesting to them. So it makes them look kind of like uh, it, it lends itself to obsessiveness or um, Hey, I'm, I'm into whatever thing I'm reading about mountain biking and I'm, I'm, I'm tinkering with my mountain biking stuff. I get into this hobby and I get in really intensely and really quickly, which is both an addict trait and an ADHD trait. I, I get into this and I'm like, you know, tinkering around with it and I'm so hyper-focused on what I'm doing. I don't even notice the passage of time. And suddenly I'm like, Oh man, I'm like an hour and a half, two hours past my bedtime, three hours past my bedtime. And I'm like, still doing this thing. And so that, that is what we call hyper-focus. The, the example that a lot of people have seen is like, you know, um, a, a young boy with ADHD who's playing a video game. And that's like, really, I mean, there's a lot of dopamine stimulus coming there. And you're like, Hey, Pete, 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 you know, you got to like yell their name. You hear that parent almost like shake them out of it. And they're like, Huh? What? <laughs> and it's almost like they're breaking out of this trance, which you can see how that like that hyper focus, when you pair that with like something like pornography mm. would create a brain that like gets into something and is hooked. Like it amplifies how likely I am to get hooked on that thing, which is also why people with ADHD tend to have a harder time with sobriety. Maintaining sobriety long term is hard for them especially in the early years, you tend to generally see more relapses and slips with people with ADHD for a whole load of reasons. And a lot of it has to do with what's going on in their brain. And uh, there's ways that we can talk about how people remedy that and work with that. But yeah, so yeah. that hyper-focus piece. You're, there's, a, there's a lot of things that you're saying here that are like really making sense for me, um, mm -hmm. especially around like that. If I don't find like if you don't find it interesting or stimulating, you know, people with ADHD, they don't want anything to do with it. Uh, mm -hmm. And that's some, some, definitely something that I can relate to 
in my life. And um, I definitely want to like move over to the addiction side of things and yeah. how this can um, take over. Now, one question I did have as far as like diagnosing ADHD, mm-hmm. what is, what's kind of like that process look like? Is it, you know, cause obviously there's a ton of online tests people can take mm-hmm. um, or is it more, Hey, you need to go see a psychiatrist, a uh, psychologist, in order to get that, like that true diagnosis for that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, if, I mean, if you're working with like a therapist who has a background in that piece or specializes in that or a psychologist, they can essentially give you kind of like a provisional diagnosis of it, usually in a conversation together and the, the client or patient becoming educated on it. Usually they go, yup, yup, yup. I identify with that and that and that and that and starts, you know the light bulbs, you know, start coming on and it's like, okay, I think this applies for me, but officially, you know, to have this kind of thing added to one's medical record and have medications prescribed, that would be a psychiatrist or at least a prescribing provider be like assess them, which, you know, in some cases, primary care physicians can do that. Um, But, you know, psychiatric nurse practitioners, PAs, or a psychiatrist, that would be how one would get officially um, diagnosed. And that diagnosis, by the way, for a lot of people with addiction is a game changer. So that's what I've seen. I've seen a lot of folks who struggle with their sobriety on an ongoing basis. Understanding this piece becomes a big turning point in their recovery because they come to realize that their addiction issues, but as well as their relational issues, were heavily influenced and impacted by their ADD or ADHD. Mm. Um, in particular, I'm even thinking of uh, things like, uh, you know, part of that distractibility, that distractibility doesn't lend itself super well to maintaining healthy relationships. You know, it's the end of the day, I'm tired, I'm home from work. This is something I have to work on in my own life. My wife's like, hey, hey, why are you looking at your phone? Why are you doing this or that? Like, like you know? You're here, be here all the way, right? That's mm. something that I have to consistently work on. And, and uh, you know, they come home, they busy themselves with a bunch of different projects or uh, are sucked into this thing or that thing. Or even when they're present, it feels like there's like a, you know, like an egg timer that, that when that egg timer goes off, they're going <laughs> to, you mm. know, off into the next thing. So that can be relationally pretty problematic. Also, a lot of the things in recovery require a lot of these executive functioning skills. Yeah. Prioritization, goal setting, sustained attention on things that I don't always want to do. Um it could be things like uh <clears throat> um uh t- another factor is time blindness. You know, that's a, a thing uh what the people with ADHD struggle with. They're often not aware of time. They they uh underestimate how long something is going to take. They tend to arrive to meetings late. They, um, and when they're there, uh, they sometimes have trouble being fully present in that process. Uh, Additionally, it could be things like, you know, just juggling the difficulty of having a life in recovery, which is kind of like a part-time job. Being in recovery Mm -hmm. is like having a part-time job for the rest of your life. It's Mm -hmm. a, you know, in early recovery, it's like a 20 hour a week part-time job. In later recovery, it's like a, 
you know, six to 10 hour a week part-time job, but it still, it takes time and juggling that kind of time demand can make it so that it's just a lot more stressful for people with ADHD. And that's what you see. You see them in their recovery. They're great at getting off to a good start because there's plenty of dopamine in early recovery. And there's also the fire that's under their butt gives kind of a spike of adrenaline, which combines well with dopamine to create a lot of this like early motivation. And what you see is them coming hot out of the gates, doing well for the first couple of months. And then as that kind of demand on their executive functioning skills continues, then you see them kind of tire out and uh, stop doing some of the things that are important, but are demanding, making the calls, getting to the meetings, meditating, um, you know, praying, uh, their step work, their, their, their book work for a therapy workbook, stuff like that. And so when those things slowly start kind of dropping off, you see this turbulence set in for them. And you see this cycle of relapse that is, I don't know, for some, it's a couple of months, for some, it's a couple of weeks. But when, when someone's stuck in that like kind of three to eight month kind of relapse cycle, that's one of the big culprits. That's what I look at with people is, is this ADHD piece messing with your recovery. Mm. Mm. And that, that gives me a lot to think about, honestly, because I, yeah. I definitely struggled um, to keep up and maintain like that constant sobriety. Like mm -hmm. the acting out looks a lot different and it's a lot right. less, you know, Yeah. but I, I still struggle with it. Like, yeah. and, I, and I, I, I can feel the emotion coming up around that because I don't want to be doing these things. I, I don't want to continue yeah. to struggle with this. And I know that, you know, I know that this is always going to be a struggle, right? It's always, I mean, I'm at the end of the day, I'm an addict. So I'm always going to struggle with these things, but I just, yeah, I've just, I've just I just, I really struggle. I really struggle sure. with this. Yeah. Um, so there's, there's, there's a lot of new things and, and things that you're bringing up that, that I'm excited to go in and look at, right? Like I'm in that, that part of my recovery where, it doesn't seem so daunting when like new things or new areas for me to look at come up. Mm -hmm. I'm more or less like, oh wow, I get to I get a chance. Me and my sponsor talk this about this a lot. Like I get a chance to uncover and to look and to work at these things. Like, okay, cool. Like I'm not so much like doom and gloom around these things. So sure, a lot of lot of really, really a lot of really good things that you're bringing up. That, that I know that I'm, I'm going to look at personally in my own recovery. And I'm sure yeah, yeah. bringing up things for other people as well. Um, totally. As far as that, like, let me say real quick. I, yeah. I, I mean, that's one of the things that I really appreciate about you on the show. I was just reflecting on that last night about how you're, um, you're, because I could connect with what you were saying and, and feel the impact of it on myself. And, and, uh, I think a lot of people, they get exposed to people on podcasts on uh, when they're reading a book or they're hearing from someone who's in some way kind of creating content around this stuff. And they're like, oh, that person's healthy now. They're like in this place where they seem to be doing really well. And it gives a sense of like, um, you know, you have to be like 100% solid in order to be sharing this kind of work and 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 there's something so profoundly uh powerful about you sharing your struggles 
I think it gives other people something to relate to, to have hope around. I just respect it so much. I was just thinking about that last night. I was like, man, this guy's courage is helping. My back, likewise. You're back. Sorry, I got disconnected. A whole bunch of people that he's not probably like, he probably can't fathom how many people he's helping. So I want to say, man, I respect the crap out of that. And you are helping so many people. And, uh, and this is what it looks like for, for most of us. This is what it looks like. It's this process of falling forward and figuring these little pieces out as we go along can make all the difference. Cause I think sometimes guys come to like a two week program and they're like, man, like I need to get everything that I want to get out of it and just have this figured out because I have so much on the line and I want to leave here with all the answers. And man, I wish I'd give them that. But it's like, man, two weeks. It's like, if you're afraid that two weeks is not enough, like that's correct. Two weeks is not enough. Two weeks is a start, but it sets us up in a framework that allows us to keep exploring. And if we stay open, honest, and willing, AA named that years ago, honesty, openness, and willingness, which that's what I hear out of you. Like it's only a matter of time Mm. before we get there. So yeah. Yeah. Yeah, just want to say that. Thank you, Sako. I like I again like emotional this time it's it's more like gratitude in just like you know, validating what I'm doing and that I, I am okay. Like yeah, I, I struggle and, and I have slips and but but I'm okay because I know I know for me and one thing in my program is like me and my sponsor are real big on like keep coming back. What are you gonna do about yeah. it? keep coming back and i know that at the end of the day i'm gonna keep coming back no matter what yeah. i'm doing no matter where i'm at i'm gonna keep coming back because i need this in my life if i don't mm-hmm. have this in my life i, I don't want to go back to to the old way because even in my worst day in recovery it's better than my best day in active addiction yeah amen 100 percent. man i love 100 yeah um and 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 you know I like what you said there about, you know, guys coming in, you know, wanting all of the answers, you know, in that two week. And, you know, you guys described it the best to us while we were out there. Is it, this was a, this is a running start. This is, this is not, this is not the red pill, blue pill, magic bullet, but this is a solid running start. And that's exactly what it was. I know for me, in my experience, it was the best running start if, I think about this too because I see people in meetings. Um, you know, my introduction to recovery was BAI. That was my introduction to trauma work, twelve step recovery, all of it. And without that, I don't know where I would be without that introduction from you guys. So again, I'm I'm a huge, huge, huge fan of what you guys are doing out there. So I and I just really appreciate the work that you guys are doing. It, yeah, it's man. changed my life. Yeah, um, yeah. thank you. So as far as like some of the remedies for mm-hmm. people with ADHD in recovery, trying to, yeah. you know, what, what, what do, what do some of those kind of look like? And again, I know that they're not, you know, okay, every morning get up and hit one, two, three on the bullet points, but sometimes I wish it was like that. <laughs> yeah, 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 and you're yeah, going to have, yeah, a, you're yeah. going to have a totally sober day. Uh, I know it doesn't yeah, work like yeah. that, but what, you know, what are some of the remedies that, that people can use or try to incorporate into their recovery in their life? Yeah. Well, one of the things that may be, I guess, a little bit obvious, but is of critical importance is for people to figure out whether this is there for them 
um, and to what degree, whether there may be ADHD going on. Um, and, and, and if they figure that piece out, it's not a, like, that's not the singular reason why their addiction exists. Like I've seen people be like, oh, this is it now. This is what I'm going to be focusing on. This is the only thing. No, it's like, it's, it's all of it. Like we, it's, it's, it's a, we're three dimensional people. So there's, it's gotta be a three dimensional solution. So, um, one of the things we're throwing out there is, um, the, um, there's been this interesting phenomenon in our culture, which I think ultimately has been well-intended. Um, and, and I understand some of like the wariness and skepticism on where it comes from. And what I'm talking about is like, um, there's been this wariness about like, you know, for example, like the pharmaceutical industry. Mm. Okay. There people are coming up with all these diagnoses to get everybody started on all these pills and, and, and driving this really profitable industry. And while yes, some of that may have truth in it, there's this, um, really, I think pretty harmful and damaging, like cultural, uh, attitude and myth that like ADHD is this modern diagnosis to slap onto like all of these little boys who are just, you know, acting like little boys and um, to get them started on medications and get them on Ritalin and, and a whole bunch of Adderall and a bunch of things and to, to just control them and make them fit into a box and, uh, and, and, and how like massively overdiagnosed it is. The truth about the stats and numbers are that ADHD is actually underdiagnosed. Mm. on how often it actually occurs and 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 people uh are wary of medications because especially stimulant medications because stimulant medications have addictive properties mm. right stimulant medications um uh, for someone who's had a stimulant use history like you know cocaine for example and a bunch of other things um yes there is a risk there um, and yet interestingly what uh, has been seen in the research is that a kid, a kids, adolescents, adults who are never diagnosed, who never recognize this, create a level of distress in their lives because ADHD basically makes your life 40% harder. Mm. Like that's the impact of it. Every day is 40% harder for you. Mm. But, uh, you have 40% less time to work with that difficulty with time management makes it so that it seems like other people are getting more done than you are or outside of the area where you're like hyper focused, right? That kind of stress and difficulty of not just managing time, but managing impulses and emotions that can actually set a person up with the self-esteem issues, the trauma that comes from like school underperformance in certain areas. And, and, and they set up this dynamic where it's like, either I'm this person who is, and this kid who's like, underperforming it is not good enough and is unworthy and less than others and that is an intolerable place for a lot of people to sit in so they bounce back they they bounce into this i'm never going to feel like that i'm going to be more than enough i'm going to be a super performer right but they still have this belief in them so you see this dichotomy in a lot of people with adhd of like of some part of them believes that they are uh, less than others and then some other part of them in areas where they're like the woman or the man, they feel like they're more than others. Mm. And that kind of like unbalanced at like experience of self places them at risk for developing addiction. 
So yes, people need to consider whether medications are a fit for them. They need to look at their history and be cautious. But even people with stimulant um, abuse histories have been able to take things like stimulant medications, which by the way, are the frontline most effective remedy and treatment for ADHD. Mm. Like there's, there's nothing that has more backup and research is stimulant medications are a game changer for the ADHD brain. People take it and they say like, for the first time in my life, I feel like my brain's working like other people's brains have been like the entire time I've been on this planet. And so that's what I've seen. Uh, so I'm unapologetically in support of those medications used judiciously because I am an addictions counselor. So I am aware of their potential for abuse. But if people are committed in recovery to using these things responsibly, the risk to them is often pretty low, hmm. right? Because as a person in recovery, they're a person who's aware of their stuff and their, their addictions. They're not taking it to get high. They're not taking it to uh, escape into something. They're taking it to enhance their life and recovery. So kind of the setting that the mind state and framework that they're taking at makes these things safer. Of course, I'm not dispensing medical advice. This is something that people sure. have to assess with a psychiatrist and, and figure out for themselves. So that's one of the remedies that is like, I put that as number one at the top. Okay. Um, there are also non-stimulant options that people can use things like Stratera um, and uh, Wellbutrin um, have shown some uh, uh, some promise for being able to treat these uh, symptoms in uh, some people. And so know that there's other medication options. The other piece is like being able to structure one's life around your executive functioning strengths and deficits. Just because a person has an ADHD brain doesn't mean that they're going to have an executive functioning deficit in all of the areas that I named. In gotcha. fact, they could have a couple of these that they're really good at. Like, for example, I have ADHD, but I'm really good at something called metacognition, which is big picture thinking. Good at zooming out. I have been since I was pretty young. And that's a that's a strength that I have. Right. Um, another one is. Um, generally is like emotion regulation. I have some uh, a general strength in that area. And so those pieces are not all of the executive functioning pieces are going to affect everyone. So part of what people need to figure out is kind of get an executive functioning profile on themselves. And you can find information online on what are common executive functioning skills. Um, there are some workbooks that can help you figure this stuff out. One of them I have um, that I use with people. It's called the Smart But Scattered Guide to Success. It's oriented uh, towards adults. Um, so the Smart But Scattered Guide to Success, and that helps. It has ways for you to ex uh, assess your executive functioning skills and see and gives you tangible ideas on how to address them. And then there's stuff like ADHD coaching. People can look into like an, uh, what's called an ADHD coach or an executive functioning coach. And unlike other types of um, support, executive functioning coaching and ADHD coaching doesn't need to be something that people do for years. They can, they can come to this person and say, I want to work on getting to bed on time. I want to work on organizing my time and space. I want to work on impulse control. 
I want to work on being present and not being spacey and disengaged. Well, they can come and set some goals and work on those for three months with this ADHD coach, executive functioning coach, four months, and put some things in place, and 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 that can be it, right? They target those two or three different areas, and just targeting those two or three different areas over the short period of time can be pretty transformative to the entirety of their lives, mm. right? So <clears throat> things like that uh, can help, and then. Tending to the basics, halt really uh, affects people with ADHD quite a bit. So sleep is key for people with ADHD. Their brains being rested. I mean, ADHD symptoms like basically increase multiple fold when you're tired, um, which is interestingly a struggle. A lot of people with ADHD struggle to get to bed on time. Or when they get to bed, they have trouble falling asleep because they have kind of a restless mind that's often mm-hmm. thinking about stuff. Uh, or they have restless legs. And uh, so there's a difficulty with that piece, but getting that piece dialed in is critical. So um, things like sleep, diet, and exercise make a whole world of difference mm-hmm. for people with ADHD. Of course, you know, what 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 is sleep, diet, and exercise, not good for it, right? Like, I mean, (laughs) so, so, so tending to those things, taking care of the body, um, can make a world of difference because actually exercise, for example, has been demonstrated to have a similar impact as I can't remember what the percentage was, but it's like, it's like taking like a quarter of a stimulant medication dose and the impact that it has on the brain. So, uh, a lot of people with ADHD, they exercise in the morning. Between that and a cup of coffee, their brains start running a little bit differently. And if, if, if they pay attention on the days that they exercise and have something like caffeine without going overboard, they're like, hey, like I'm, I'm, I'm firing more on all cylinders here um, when I have these pieces on board. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. I, I, I will say that that is definitely like, Exercise for me, like definitely like puts me in a completely different space. Now, obviously I don't know for sure if I have ADHD, I I think that I have some form of it, but just, man, and just the things that you're talking about, like there's so many things that I can relate to restless legs. Mm -hmm. When you said restless legs, I was like, Oh, like I got that, that restless mind. Like there's just, there's just a a lot of really good information that you've given and, and a lot of things that I need to take a look at. Um, and so I'm, again, I'm, I'm really curious to look more into this and I, I really appreciate you sharing, you know, these different yeah. perspectives and, you know, you've changed my mind around the idea of medication. Mm. Um, cause I know for a, a long time, most of my recovery, I mean, I suffer from anxiety as well. Um, mm. and, and I was always kind of under the, I don't want to take medication because I don't, I'm afraid that medication is going to like numb me out to the point where Mm -hmm. like, yeah, my lows aren't very low, but my highs aren't high either that natural, Mm -hmm. you know, high. So I was Mm -hmm. always afraid of just kind of like numbing out essentially on medication and that through recovery, I can find ways to help manage these things. But you've kind of definitely like changed the perspective around medication for me. Absolutely. Yeah. Which what you're saying is like, there's truth to that. People can manage like medications are not the only option around 
anything. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet part of what I would tell people is like, this isn't a lifetime prescription. Like someone can take it and see how it impacts them and kind of test mm-hmm. things out, test the waters. Like it's yeah. not like, hey, take it for a month, two months, you know, kind of get through a little bit of like the side effects period with some of these medications. Like sometimes there are some side effects, but people find stuff that doesn't have a ton of side effects for them, which, you know, some of that is trial and error. Yeah. And, and, and they can get a sense of how, yeah, what does this look like a couple of months in? And it doesn't mean that they need to continuously stay on that for the rest of their lives. And so that should make it a little bit less daunting. It's not a lifetime subscription to medications, right? Mm-hmm. And a lot of people with uh, on medications don't describe it as like, oh, this is just, I'm just like numb to stuff now. There's some people who, there's some people who experience some version of that, but most people are like, no, actually my brain is working more in the way that I think it should. Mm. And it's allowing me to experience my emotions in this more, more realistic three-dimensional manner. And it doesn't, you know, just deaden me to stuff. Now, you know, of course, when somebody has anxiety, that has to be considered because stimulant medications can increase their anxiety. So there's a whole bunch of things people have to look at and consider for individual cases. But what I've seen in my practice and my work with guys is identifying this issue, diagnosing it, coming to understand it, developing strategies for executive functioning and considering the possibility of medications has been a game changer to their life, their recovery and their sobriety. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. And I think like that, the trial and error aspect that you, that you spoke of, I think that anybody in recovery should be fairly familiar with trial and error and then, mm-hmm. you know, it's okay. Cause I know before recovery trial and error, I, I remember I tried getting into therapy and it didn't work out. And I was like, oh, I got so much work to go try to find another one. I'm just not even going to worry about it. Um, right. But you know, being in recovery, like that recovery is trial and error, figuring out what works mm-hmm. for you, what doesn't work for me. Like, so again, it, it's not so daunting when I come ag- up against things of like trial and error and, and thinking about things. Um, so I am really grateful for that aspect that recovery has given me, um, 100%. Yeah. 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 Um, well said, man. I do have, I do, I do want to throw, throw out a question from a listener. And I thought this was a re- really yeah. good, uh, question, um, sent yeah. to me by Jamie. Um, is ADHD tied more closely to genetics or trauma specifically in childhood? Um, if it can be tied to trauma, once we healed our trauma and found healthy coping mechanisms to deal with it, will the effects of ADHD lessen? Yeah. Yeah. This is a bit of a, this is a great question, Jamie. Um, and, uh, go ahead and call into the studio. We'd love to have you, uh, have a listener call it. Right. Uh, but, uh, yeah. So, um, this may be a little bit controversial because there's the the scientific and clinical community is not in total agreement on this. One of the big names in the addiction field, and for good reason, who's been a real pioneer of, of um, sharing education and information, which has changed people's lives and their perspectives on themselves, is Dr. Gabor Mate, which mm-hmm. a lot of people have heard of. He wrote the book In the Realm of Hungry Ghosts. He also wrote a book on ADHD called Scattered Minds or scattered, depending on um, uh, whether it's in Canada or the US, the title. And he has both, right? He has talked about his addiction and the form that it takes and his ADHD. 
And what's interesting, although I love a lot of what Dr. Gabor Mate talks about, I am in disagreement with him. And so is a lot of the scientific and clinical community on, on he says that ADHD is neither genetic nor is it inheritable. And he says that it's tied into trauma, which there is some there is some like definite support that what's true is trauma can exacerbate ADHD and what some kids, for example, who look like they have ADHD really are more traumatized because that kind of dissociated spaciness, difficulty with emotion regulation, you can see how there's like overlap there on someone who has a lot of trauma who disconnects and dissociates from the trauma occurring in their environment that they can't do anything about and may not even actively recognize. So there is truth to that. I will say there's truth to that. But ADHD in most of the scientific community is considered to be the most heritable or inheritable of, of the um, disorders, hmm. right? So it believe, it's, it's believed that it's highly genetic. And I would say based on my family experience and my experience, I would say that's, that's true. Hmm. And most of the folks that I've worked with, I've seen that to be true. There are, of course, other people that you can talk to and read about who will not agree with that. I am not presenting myself as like the expert on this is what it is. This has been my experience clinically. Sure. So there's a strong genetic uh, linkage to ADHD. And remember that it is a it's a type of neuro difference. It not, it's not just a disorder like a a, like a symptom of depression that somebody symptoms of depression, like that's set in as a result of something else. It's, it's a, it's a difference in the way a person's brain is wired that affects their executive functioning. And that's where um, it's not just, Hey, do your therapy work, do your trauma work and the ADHD will go away. Mm. Like that's not how it works for the vast majority of people. Yeah. Okay. In fact, people can get sober and get healthy in their lives, but still be struggling with all of those symptoms, you know, um, and, and their partners will often come and their kids will be impacted by that more so than their addiction at that point. Mm. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah, that's, uh, that's really good. Just a really good perspective. Um, and shout out to yeah. Jamie again. Thank you for the question. Uh, that was a that was a great question. Um, Thanks, Jamie. One more question before I let you go. Um, yeah. With it being the holiday season, this was this question was sent yeah. in from Steve, Steve, a BAI alum. Uh, with it being mm -hmm. holiday season, what would be your top advice on how to navigate sobriety and manage recovery during the holidays, where there can be lots of trauma triggers and family issues that emerge? Because I know that this. Ooh. Yeah. Things have gotten better for me around this because this time of the year with Thanksgiving and Christmas, things have gotten better for me. But I know very early on in recovery, I really struggled around the holidays. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, man, it's a great question. It's a one it's one that's difficult to answer quickly sure. because sure, sure. for all the reasons <laughs> that you all can imagine. Part of what I would say is like the basics of our recovery, kind of the past shoot and dribble like the 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 day-to-day -day anchoring points kind of our our daily habits going to meetings connecting with others um meditation prayer readings like 
it's it's hard to keep these things up, especially when a, when one schedule is disrupted. Like, oh, you're out of town, you got family in town, you're uh, there's a lot going on, right? So it just messes with their schedule. I think making a commitment to sticking to those things makes a big difference as like a in in uh, for a holiday survival guide. Additionally, it's about anticipating some of the friction that is likely going to arise, right? There's a saying in the world of behavior uh, and behavioral health, the best predictor of future behavior is past behavior. Hmm. And that doesn't mean a person can't change, but you know, if uncle Luke tends to start an argument at the table, you know, about X, Y, Z thing, and it's a reminder of stuff from the past or, you know, the way in which, you know, my brother or mom says something condescending that can activate me, there's a good chance they're going to do something like that during that time. And I can go in surrendered and pre-armored up, knowing that they're likely going to act like they have before. And I get to choose how much I let that get to me. So I think making that plan of knowing that's likely going to happen and instead of being like, oh, man, it happened again. One more year ruined by this. You know, why can't they change? Because in the, in the, in the world of recovery, we're doing all this work. And we kind of wish that other people were, too. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But it's like the truth is, like, not everybody is in recovery. And and some of us, it took us years to get there. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> um, part of it is just like getting an understanding that we can't control other people. And uh, the, the last little piece I'll say is there's a um, there's an alternate version of uh, the serenity prayer that's used in circles like Al-Anon and CODA, Codependence Anonymous. And it goes, uh, God grant me the serenity to accept the people I cannot change, the courage to change the one I can, and the wisdom to know that it's me. Mm. And so knowing your your impulses, your emotions, your attitude is the main thing you control. You don't control other people and a plan that involves me controlling others is a setup. Yeah. Yeah. So I hope that helps. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and make a plan, talk about it. Talk mm-hmm. about it, reach out to program friends, connections, your sponsor, you know, trusted members that, that you can talk to. I found that that's been huge for me just talking about it, knowing that I have somebody that I can call that's going to hear whatever I need to get out so that it doesn't mm-hmm. so i don't stuff it down and it comes out sideways or boils over the top thanksgiving morning totally well said love it yeah make awesome. a plan talk about it i'm i'm in support of that i'm in support of that make a plan yeah uh well Sako, yeah man thank you so much for coming on the show man i i really appreciate this um just your willingness to come on to share your experience with these things and your perspective um you know, not only from a professional standpoint, but also someone from a personal standpoint as well. I, I really appreciate it, man. And definitely I'm going to have to have you all back on again. So um, we'll definitely be in contact and uh, and bring you back on. But, man, just thank you. I just I can't say that enough. Just thank you so much for coming on, man. I really appreciate it. You're welcome. And thanks for honoring me and having me on here. And uh, like I said, I just 
love what you're doing and uh, you have the perfect um, personality and energy to bring to this kind of uh, this kind of work. And, and I'm, I imagine you're aware of this, but you're literally doing service work as you know, you do this and share your story and interview people. So you're helping tons of folks out and I'm excited to see where this goes. And I'd love to be on again in the future. Awesome. Thank you so much, Sako, yeah. man. I, I really appreciate it. It means a lot to me.